Good evening. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered focus, decisive action, and inspired outcome. Tonight's spotlight is on entrepreneurship and decisive action with my guest, Dr. John F.D. Martini. This is part three of my interview with him. And he, of course, is the creator of the Breakthrough Experience and the Demartini Method. He has been featured on national news outlets like CNN and Larry King Live and been featured in the blockbuster hits The Secret as well as The Opus. This is part three. Enjoy. Well, you know, I lived in Hawaii, and um, I was—I found out uh, before I met Paul Bragg. I found out where avocados trees were. Where we used to swipe them. Um, <laughs> we found pineapples, which we'd get shot at trying to steal them. <laughs> we uh, found banana trees. We found seaweed. We found little lobsters. We had—we created a IGA supermarket lobster cage, and we caught lobsters. There was a place where fish get trapped in the rocks. We'd just get fish. We'd boil them or cook them or something. Um, we had coconut. We had seaweed. We had, we had, we found ways of surviving there. We'd buy bulks of rice and boil rice sometimes. And, um, you know, I, so I was eating, I guess you could say, sort of natural foods because we were getting right from nature. But when I met Paul Bragg, I, um, I got inspired. That's all I can tell you. There's no way you can meet this man or his daughter, for that matter, without being inspired. Uh, just truly unique individuals. I, I've dreamed about being able to make a contribution to the world as much as what he did for me. And, um, yeah, I, I started eating. I became conscious, and I started realizing that uh, you live not to eat, but eat to live. And he said that, you know, don't put anything in your, your body that's not food. And he said, you know, t- dump out the white sugar and the white flour and the white salt and, the you know, the junk food, which I did, it wasn't, which I didn't really have a lot of anyway. I couldn't afford it. And... Um, I just started eating wisely, and I to this day, I, there's no way you can meet Paul Bragg without changing your diet, and it's just part of the thing. This man inspires you to do that, and I've been very aware of food and eat without. I don't, I've never felt like I've sacrificed. I've just realized it's smart, and I saw the difference in my energy levels and vitality, and and I, I'm 55, and most people think I'm you know much younger than that. I look pretty good for that, and I think that has something to do with it. Doing what you love and loving to do and eating well, I think, has an impact. And uh, so, yeah, he had an impact on me. I, I started fasting, and I started to eat wisely and not overeat and do all the things he said. And without a doubt, it makes a difference in your physiology, psychology, and performance. You're a chiropractor for a while. I know a lot about that. I started going to one when I was a child. I have well, what they call left lateral scoliosis and, uh, you know, the thoracic, cervical, and lower lumbar. Um, how did that change your life? Because many people, I'm sure at that time, didn't consider uh, being a chiropractic doctor much of anything. Uh, they still still laugh at it, saying it's not medical, you shouldn't do it. I do it. Well, you know, when I, uh, I came back to Texas from first to Hawaii to L.A., and I hitchhiked back to Texas, I took my GED, I, I uh, failed that test, I went and I made a determination to just get into school and go for it. I started excelling. I mean, it, it, within six months, I was I was taken off, and within a year, I was near the top of the class. And um, I just started teaching, and I learned if I teach something, I learn something, and I just started excelling. By the time I went into University of Houston, I ended up being, uh, you know, an honor student, and I went to the pre-med honor society, 
And it was interesting, the, the, Dr. Kaminsky, who was there, asked me, you know, John, you're at the top of the class. You want to go anywhere you want in medical school. Where, where do you want to go? I'll help you get in. And I said, well, it's interesting. I want to be a chiropractor because I really believe that we didn't have an excess amount of organs or a deficiency of drugs, but we had a power inside us to heal. And I believe that if we didn't interfere with it, it did amazing things. So I'm not saying that the medicine doesn't have a place. It's just that that didn't seem to be where I wanted to go. I just didn't want to dispense pharmaceuticals or that just wasn't my belief. And uh, I just was so inspired by the idea. I thought of naturopathic or chiropractic, and I was in Peru on a really interesting adventure going surfing in, in, in Peru that I went to Machu Picchu, and I read a book there called The Chiropractic Story, and I fell in love with the philosophy, and I decided, uh, man, that philosophy is the one that I, I want to do that because it really believes that there was a, a power inside the body to heal, and if you just didn't interfere with it, it had a capacity to, to do that. So I went into chiropractic, and, uh, yeah, some people thought it was strange, but, you know, it was an honored profession. I mean, this is 1978 when I entered. In 1978, uh, it was still considered one of the three professions of, of healing, and it was honored. It still hadn't overcome the uh, Wilkes case, which is in the 80s. It finally made medicine not allowed to condemn it because it was mm -hmm. with it. But um, I'm, I'm very inspired to be a chiropractor. I'm very grateful. I can't think of anything I would rather have studied. I went to Baylor Medical School uh, in addition to chiropractic college to see if my education was comparable to that medical school. I used to just go over there. And uh, after going to that school and taking the classes and even taking some of the tests, uh, I realized that I had just as good an education, I was, I was in just as good a hands, and it was just as good a curriculum. And that was uh, a really eye-opener to see because everybody was saying, well, you know, it's not the same as medical school. And I went over to medical school, and it was, there was absolutely the same classes, same kind of test. It was the same level. And when I did, I, I was very inspired by what I got, and I was inspired, and I worked you know, 10 times harder than what was expected. And I just, I loved everything. I wanted to have a photographic image of every physiological, every psychological, every biochemical, every neurological. I mean, I, I was neurotic about learning everything I could about the body-mind. And um, I'm very grateful that I got to practice. I saw truly miraculous things happen in my eyes. I had a boy who was in a coma come out in my hands. I saw people that were blind literally return sight. I saw people walk that were paralyzed, even quadriplegic come back. I mean, I saw amazing things in my office. And it didn't matter, it didn't matter in the world what anybody thought about it. I was watching it happen. And that, that to me was uh, the proof of the pudding. But I also know that I had a destiny to be teaching, and I knew sitting in an office uh, somewhat confined, even though I had five doctors working underneath me, um, I still felt a little bit confined. I wanted to reach millions and millions of people with my message. So I, I did that, and then I started teaching others, and I just kept teaching, and now I full-time teach. I'm really inspired I, I, uh, just hearing that. I know that the chiropractic uh, care that I've received works, and I remember when I was a kid, they, um, I, since I'd spent so much time in a medical setting, I'd just read notes, which you know doctors sometimes have horrible writing, but I got to be pretty good at it. But when I went to my chiropractor, he had um, the spine and all the different uh, organs of the body that correlate to different parts of the spine. And I just thought it was pretty cool. I didn't well, know that that could, ha that could happen. I used to tell people I line spines and minds of the divine to make people feel fine. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I watch people. I used to see a lot of patients and... I watched amazing things, and so I'm very grateful. I, I, I'm so inspired and grateful that I had the opportunity to at least practice for a number of years 
and uh, to do that. And I still speak to health professionals, not just chiropractors, but many health professionals. And uh, I speak to thousands a year, and I tell them that, uh, you know, I let them know that you're working with the most amazing body, mind, soul that there is, and you want to learn everything you want. You want to honor that by learning every detail inside and out until you have a photographic mind of every detail and, and honor that body and, and really be present with the healing and master it. Don't take it lightly. Don't just do it as a job. Take it on as a calling. And um, when they do, they, they have amazing results because the results do have an impact by, based on your gratitude for what you do, the love for what you do, the certainty in which you do it, and the presence while you do it. Awesome. Wanted to know, in, in terms of uh, your breakthrough experience and reading many of the chapters, you um, mentioned that for those people who feel that they had been victimized or gone through a bad time, that that individual, say myself, I'll use myself as an example, I would have to go into the areas where I may have been that way to other people. Is that really therapeutic for people to really go through those particular steps? What have you seen with your breakthrough experience of people actually breaking through and seeing that what we, we deem as abuse or whatnot may have been something we've done to maybe someone else or been that way? Well, it, it, I, after doing a quarter of a million people, I'm absolutely certain because we haven't had one case that doesn't show it. Uh, in the breakthrough experience, I, I don't let them get away with bullshitting themselves. I make them work, and I make them look, and I make them wake up, and I make them aware, and they're in tears. They they because mm -hmm. they first realize that whatever they see in others, the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same, and you can't see it unless you got it. Now that goes back to Aristotle, and many philosophers have referred to this. And you go in there, and you got to own it because it's easy to say we're all reflections, man, but it's another thing to actually own it. 100%. And so what we do is we make people own it and look. And we don't want to make people bullshit. We want people to make up stuff. We just want them to look and scan their life until they really see that they've done those actions in a different form, a unique form, but still they've done them. And then what we do is we find out how it serves because it's never what happens to you. It's how you perceive it. And you've got to take command of your perceptions because if you make a hell out of a heaven or a heaven out of a hell, that's your business, not the action, not, the, not what this other person does. So... Uh, what we do is we make them find the blessings and the things that they think are curses, and we actually make them find the drawbacks of the things that they're infatuated with. And we bring their mind back into balance because they're set free. Because as long as they're infatuated or resentful to anything, it runs their life, not them. And once we bring it back into balance with the right questions, they get to be freed of that and get to run their own life. And then we find the benefits of where they've done it. Then we find out where the person that they think have done something, where they have done the opposite, so we break the labels we project onto them. Then we find out at the moment they did it who is doing the opposite to balance it, which is mind-blowing. I mean, absolutely mind-blowing when people realize that. And then we ask them if they hadn't have done it, what has been the drawback? Because sometimes they get addicted to a fantasy that life would be happy or joyful if they had not done it, but in truth, life would have just been different and there would have been a new set of challenges in their life. And as long as they've got a fantasy that they're comparing their current reality to or previous reality to, uh, they're not going to appreciate anything. So we have to crack their fantasy. We have to get them to reflect, uh, have them see and balance their perceptions and liberate themselves from the emotional baggage and bondage that they're in and set them free to be grateful again. And the second they are, they get to love that part of themselves. If not, they're trying to run away from half their own life. And you, can't, uh, you don't need to get rid of any part of yourself in order to love yourself. And if you're not loving somebody else, it's a reflection of us we're not loving. So what we do is we set people free in the breakthrough experience. It's very profound. 
In um, reading the book, you know, The Breakthrough Experience, I was reading that um, you had, of course, a love of, of science and, you know, you were asking what was science and mysticism and uh, could you speak a little bit of that uh, since you've studied theology and many other ologies and probably ologies I can't pronounce? <laughs> well, see, what I did is uh, Paul Bragg gave me an affirmation when I told him I didn't know how to read. Um, he told me, so that's not a problem. Say this affirmation every day. So I thought, okay, that's kind of corny, but I'll do it. And he said to say every day, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. So I started doing that. I've never missed a day in 37 years. I say it multiple times because I really believe that a genius is one who listens to their inner voice and follows the inner vision and just goes does it. And um, so I started doing that, and that led me again back to California and to Texas and taking the GED and going to college, and, and I started to read. Well, when I did, my mom came to me after I started doing better and learning how to read. My mom said, what do you want for your birthday and Christmas? Uh, this is when I was turning 19. And I said, Mom, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings humanity's ever created. And she said, uh, well, anything else? <laughs> I said, no, that's all I care about. And so she contacted her brother, who was a performer professor at MIT and Boston, and um, he sent two giant six-by-six-by-six-foot wooden crates on a flatbed truck down to our home. And it was a virtual giant library, and I literally opened it up with a crowbar and filled my room with just thousands of books, and it was just the most inspiring thing I'd ever imagined. And I sat and literally 18 to 20 hours a day, I just sat and devoured and read and read and read and fasted and read and fasted. And I set out, I, I came across in the studies on philosophy and theology a concept that the Greeks described as the logos, which is basically the word or the, the creation process in theology. And I thought, okay, well, all the different ologies or disciplines that are to study are all fragmentations of logos. And if I want to know the universal laws and the logos, I've got to study the disciplines. So I made a list of every known discipline at the time in the dictionary and encyclopedia. And I circled and put them alphabetically. And then I realized that the average person would study, to get a Ph.D., would study 75 to 100 books to get a Ph.D. program. Because I, I literally went to a Ph.D. program that looked at what they had to study in their curriculum. And then I set out on a quest to uh, take the 275 different disciplines and read 100 books on each one. So I'm now going closely on to the 29,000 books. I'll break 29,000 probably in the next five or six months. And I've just been reading ever since, since I was 18 there. And uh, reading, I, I learned and developed speed reading uh, processes. So I used to read anywhere from four to seven books a morning. And then I, some days I'd just go 15 books, 20 books. And I was just devouring books throughout the day and going to libraries and just reading and reading and reading. And people thought, you know, I was just obsessed and neurotic. But you've got to realize that when you're told you'll never read and when everybody else takes it for granted and you all of a sudden find out you can, you want to catch up. And I just, I love reading. I, I, <laughs> I read a book on the flight coming back here uh, just from L.A. today. I just love reading. In your search of, uh, you know, knowledge, I was wondering, um, you were told, you know, you couldn't read, and then you found out. I mean, that must have been amazing, an amazing time for you. Uh, before that, though, uh, what was your impression of yourself? Because many people don't have, uh, you know, people in their corner rooting for you, like your mom, saying, hey, you know, no matter what you are or what you decide to do with your life, we're there for you. We love you. What do you say to those individuals who really may have not 
uh, or don't know that they have experienced that in their life. They may have experienced it, but they're just unaware. Well, what I do is I tell them, see, I, I travel the world, and one of my missions, one of my, my primary objectives is just to be that Paul Bragg for other people. And I do a Young Adults Inspired Destiny program in Africa for kids that don't have that. Right. And I act that for them and inspire them. We have thousands of kids now that we get to impact because of that. And I'm hoping to do more in different countries. But, um, yeah, I, I, I say that don't wait for other people to do that. If you don't have it, do it yourself. And start filling your mind. You know, you can't put your hand in the pot of glue without some of the glue sticking. Start to read. Start to learn. Start to take command of your life. Give yourself permission to do something extraordinary. And and if because if you keep saying you're not, you won't. You got to be able to change, turn that around. And if you wait for somebody else to do it, it may not show. So you got to be able to do it yourself. Now I was blessed, but you know it's interesting. I, I we were, you asked me a minute ago about what was I, what were my ambitions as a teenager. Uh, I, I I'm laughing at this now, but when I was 15, I was in California, and uh, I didn't have. Uh, I, I lied about my age. I, I had to get a job. And I got me a job as a, a machinist uh, for Pa the Fuel Carburetor Company. And um, I, you know, I told him I was 16, but I, I didn't have any documents or anything like that. But he let, they let me have a job. And uh, I met a girl there in California. And I, she was 15. And I believe it or not, I was thinking about settling down and getting married. And there was a mobile home park. Um, I think it was on Garfield Street at Atlantic Avenue there in Compton, which is the roughest area of L.A., Wow. And um, I saw a mobile home there, and th- I know it's gonna, you're going to laugh at this, but it was $2,700, a mobile home. And I thought that if I kept working, I could pay that thing off in a matter of years, and I was going to settle down and get married to that girl and live in that mobile home. <laughs> wow. See, that, that, that would have been, we, 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 I don't know whether we'd be talking, or maybe we would. You just never uh, know I how things know. would have turned out. I, I, uh, luckily, you know, it's interesting, I, a, a, a turn of fate, as they say. I was uh, getting stoned one night, um, because that's what I did in those days. I was getting stoned. I was living in a garage, and I was getting stoned one night, and a buddy from Texas happened to find out where I was and came to that garage out of the blue. And he said, I'm going to Hawaii, and, um, you know, you want to go? I said, no, I'm settling down. I've got me a girlfriend. And he says, oh, man, that's crazy, man. you got to go to surfing, man. Anyway, within a couple hours and getting stoned, he had me convinced I needed to go surfing. <laughs> so I went on to Hawaii, and uh, that was a turning point. So that was one of those twists of fate. I, I think I'd be probably living on uh, Compton Boulevard, probably the roughest area of L.A. if it wasn't for that. <laughs> and there would be, of course, a different uh, John DiMartini, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I would have probably been a, a – I, well, the, the job where I was working, they said that I was a good worker. And I, um, I did work, you know, I, was, I had a good work ethic, but um, not much of a vocabulary. But I was just making these little machines. I was doing a lathe profiler and drill press. So I was learning how to do that, which wasn't high skill. And, um, but that's where I would have probably, <laughs> who knows. But when I made it to Hawaii, then I thought, well, okay, then I'm going to make surfboards. So I studied with Dick Brewer, who made country surfboards there, which a buddy of mine owns that company today. So that would have been probably another possibility if it wasn't for meeting Paul Bragg. Cool. 